Second Thessalonians chapter 3, we deviated from our study through the books of First and Second Thessalonians over the last couple of Sundays because I wanted to get a more complete picture of the events that Paul has described in those two wonderful letters. In First Thessalonians, remember he discussed the rapture of the church, the coming of Jesus Christ, the wonderful blessings that we have as we wait for Him and His wonderful second coming, return to this earth for His church, but not to the earth. According to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, He comes in the clouds and we are gathered together with all of the saints who have gone on before us to be together with Him in the clouds and there we shall ever be with the Lord. It's a rapture, a taking away. The Greek word is harpazo. The Latin word in the Latin uh, Vulgate is rapturas, which is what we get the word rapture from. Well, that all was given to us by the Apostle Paul in First Thessalonians. Then in Second Thessalonians, he proceeded to talk about some of the other things that they were confused about regarding the end times. They believed that since Paul had told them that there's judgment coming and that judgment would be a time of great wrath, that because they were experiencing such great difficulties, great persecution in the Thessalonian church at the time, they wrote to Paul and said, hey, are we in the tribulation period that you described when you were here with us? Paul writes the second letter, Second Thessalonians, to ensure them that, no, we have not yet entered into the tribulation period, and this is the reason. There has to be at least two things that need to be fulfilled in order for that period to begin to unfold. And the first is a general apostasy, away from faith. I believe we're in that state, that time, because there is evidence of that actually being fulfilled in our day among many, many other things that are going on in the world. You know, I'm so grateful for, for Matt's pause and really very good message from the actual worship to a time where he just shared his heart and his concern, but his faith, his confidence in what God has said. Trusting in God is so very, very needful. And in these last days, it is very, very very needful indeed. But that second part of what Paul had argued in Second Thessalonians has to do with a man of sin who would come on the scene. But that would not happen until the first thing takes place. The falling away. And I believe that falling away is associated with the rapture of the church. Because if the church is still on the earth, as we are now, there must be Light still shining. There must be work still needing to be done by the church. There must be a reason that God hasn't called us yet. And I believe simply the reason is the fullness of Gentiles has not yet come in. God has a certain number of individuals who will be saved and He will get them saved. And it's through our ministry on this earth as light and salt that people are indeed brought to salvation by the power of the Holy Spirit, who He alone is responsible for the drawing of people to Himself. It's the Spirit of God 
that is responsible for convicting men of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It is the Spirit of God who bears witness to Christ Jesus and the work that He did for our salvation so that we can come by faith knowing that He will indeed save all who call on His name and ask for His forgiveness. Because that's why He did come that first time. So now we're here looking at the end of chapter 3, the last chapter in Second Thessalonians. But before we do that, I'm mindful of the fact that over the last two weeks, we expanded our understanding, I hope, of those end times events that have to do with the rapture of the church, the tribulation, seven years of Jacob's trouble upon the earth, seven years of judgment, that 70th week of Daniel, the time when the man of lawlessness will be revealed and he will bring great destruction upon the earth and God's wrath will fall on all who are on the earth at the time. That's yet to happen. And then we looked at the last couple of weeks. Where is the church during this terrible tribulation that will take place? And I submitted to you, I believe it is true, that the Word of God declares that the church is going to experience a time with the Lord Jesus during that seven-year period of time. And there is associated with that time a period of judgment, not of sin, but a judgment for reward that the church, each member of the church, will receive a reward for those things done in his or her body. That's what Paul tells us that is taking place in heaven, I believe, during that seven-year period of time on the earth while the wrath is being poured out upon those unbelievers still remaining. And then we looked last week at the very end of the story. Well, more or less. The end of the story as we know it. That 1,000-year reign of Christ. We've been given a great amount of information about what will take place after the tribulation period is over. When Christ comes to the earth, sets his feet upon Mount Zion, establishes his reign as king over all the earth, on the throne of David, in the city of Jerusalem, and he will indeed reign for a thousand years from that wonderful place in fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophets as well as the things that are recorded for us in the book of Revelation and elsewhere. Those are the things I wanted to focus on as we continue through these wonderful letters written to the Thessalonian church so many years ago. But now we come to the end of this letter, Second Thessalonians in chapter 3, and Paul has some very important things to share with the believers then and with us here today. There's a responsibility that we have in light of what we have been made aware of, in light of what Paul has re- re- revealed to us through his wonderful teaching of end times events. And that's where we're going to focus our time here today. Verse 1 of chapter 3, 2 Thessalonians. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. It's interesting that Paul tells the Thessalonian church here, we've got some issues even in the church. Paul was writing this particular letter from the city of Corinth. 
He had been in Corinth now for well over a year. His entire period of time in Corinth will be about 18 months. And Corinth was a city that was a terrible city of lustfulness, like Las Vegas, if you will, in our present society. Or maybe some of the other great cities of our nation that allow such lewdness, especially in these last days, is getting worse and worse and worse. But in Corinth, Paul established the church. But there was opposition. There were troubles. There were people who didn't believe what Paul was teaching. Primarily, Jews were misleading the church and causing a great deal of trouble. Paul in Second Thessalonians chapter 3 just indicated that he needs their prayer because he's facing a terrible, terrible confrontation of the mind of those who are against him. Take note of the fact again that he says they're unreasonable and wicked men. Don't think that's not happening in the church today. But Paul needed to address that. And his focus is, we've got to do something about it. His focus is simply, pray for me. That I might have the boldness to speak against those things. And I might have the power of the Holy Spirit to embrace the truth of God's Word and share it even in the midst of all of this trouble that is around me. I want your prayers, Paul said. And frankly, I'm very much in agreement with the Apostle Paul with regard to any one of us who are presenting the Word of God, myself and any other pastor who does so. We need your prayer. Prayer is so very important. Paul said, pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God concerning you in Christ Jesus. Paul said, be discerning, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Despise not prophesying or the proclaiming of God's Word. Be faithful Bereans. Study the Word of God so that you can either agree with what has been presented by comparing it to the Word of God or disagree and let the one who preaches falsehood know that that is not according to the Word of God. But my desire is that I be covered in prayer so that I can come before you and proclaim the Word of God in truth and accurately under the anointing of His Holy Spirit and let the Word of God go forth and not return unto Him void. That's my desire, but it requires, it's necessary that I'm supported by men and women of prayer. We have people who come before the service on Sunday morning at our other building at the lighthouse down below here. And they pray before the service. I'm so grateful for that. I'd love to see that increase more and more. I'd like to see every man available to go there and join them with prayer for that time. I'm grateful for the women who meet on Mondays in the afternoon for the same reason, coming together to pray for the church, for the pastor, for the body of Christ. I'm grateful for those things. I'm grateful for the prayer team that we have. If you've not signed up to be a part of that prayer team and you want to be, it's a very simple thing. All I need is your email or and or your phone number if you have a cell phone. I'm not asking for your social security number or your credit card. I'm not asking for your checkbook account. I don't care what you do with that. I just want to know that I can send you a prayer request and that you would be faithful to respond by praying for those things 
on a regular basis. We have a website. And on that website, we have a private prayer page. The general population can't get to it. It requires a password. Our prayer team has access to that. And that simply gives a list of all the various prayers that we have outstanding, that are still being considered as being requests that need prayer. There's also a place on that same page so that you can see the list of those who are in attendance at Safe Harbor Church, and you can display that information and pray for those individuals. There's lots of things that we can be praying for. Paul insisted, pray without ceasing. Pray always. Open your heart to being willing to set time aside, to pray on a regular basis to your God. Paul was saying, this is what we all need. I need it. You need it. He needed it. But those who were against him, that's why prayer is so important. Prayer will break those bonds. The chains that hold men and women back from being able to be faithful servants of the Most High. In first, in second rather, there you go again, I said First Thessalonians, that was wrong. It's second Corinthians chapter 11, turn there with me, Second Corinthians chapter 11, and read with me some of the things that Paul says there with regard to the opposition that he's facing. He starts out in verse 1 of chapter 11, 2 Corinthians, by saying, Oh, that you would bear with me a little folly. And indeed, you do bear with me, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest somehow as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ." For if he who comes preaches another Christ, another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. Even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge, but we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things." So Paul is saying, look, I have this great concern. There are men and women who are against me. They try to change what I've been saying. They try to tell you that I am telling you lies. They try to convince you that I'm mistaken in my understanding of what God intends for you as a church. Paul says, don't listen to them. But he says, my desire, and this is my desire too, me, pastor of this church, Locally here in Searsport, Maine, my desire is like Paul's desire. I want to present you as a chaste virgin. Just like Paul said to the Corinthian church, I want to present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. That means we, all of us, collectively as the body of Christ, need to know His Word. We need to function as the body of Christ. We need to be obedient to the commands of God. We need to understand what God has spoken regarding those things that we are all now part of as the body of Christ. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? It is so, so very needful for us to be on our knees and pray for the leadership, pray for those who are struggling among us, 
Pray for those in the body who have great need. And we need them to minister to them, to meet those needs. That's what body ministry is all about. Paul knew it so very well, and he's conveyed it so wonderfully in these passages that we're looking at today. But notice what I had said earlier about obedience. We are to obey the commands of God. I want to show you here in chapter 3 that Paul says four times that he's going to give them a command or reference a command. Now, that sounds kind of authoritarian, doesn't it? If I were to say to you as a pastor of your church, I command you to do this, guess what? You could go ahead and leave this place and never come back because that would be anathema for me to be so bold as to speak such a command to any of you. But Paul has the authority to say, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ because he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He has been given that authority by the Lord to make that kind of a statement. And he makes it here in Thessalonica. Again, turn back with me now to chapter 3 of verse of uh, 2 Thessalonians and begin reading with me at verse 4 where he says, And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we suggest. If you have the NIV, that's probably what it says. Uh, Suggest isn't the idea given here by Paul. And the word is indeed, I command you. Read it again. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do, that means you are in obedience, and you will do, that means you are going to be in obedience to the things Paul, the apostle, under the authority that God has given him as the apostle of Jesus Christ, has commanded you. But what are those things? Remember last, oh, three or four weeks ago, we were in First Thessalonians in chapter 5. And I talked about the fact that, well, in the Old Testament, God gave the Jews the Ten Commandments. And I suggested to you that, listen, although we are certainly in a place where we need to understand those commandments apply to us, but not in the same way that they were intended for the people of Israel. They were obligatory commands. And I'm not saying that they were just suggestions for us, but they're commands that we are to still live by, although we're not under those laws that he gave to the nation of Israel in order to obtain our salvation. That's not what we are all about. The commandments given to Israel were obligatory in the sense that if they did not obey, they would not receive God's forgiveness. Now that we're on the other side of Christ's resurrection, we have forgiveness. As Matt said earlier, there's been a trade. I like to refer to it as, to it as an exchange. He took my filthy rags, my sinfulness, my nature as a sinner, took it away and exchanged it for His righteousness. And He's clothed me with His righteousness so that when God looks at me and He looks at any one of us who are truly born again, He sees Christ's righteousness in us. What an exchange. What a trade has been made. 
What an awesome God we serve. So we're not obligated under the law to obtain salvation, to obey those laws, but we are still instructed that those laws are so very much important as things that we need to follow and believe and apply in our lives. Now, there is one exception out of those ten, what we call a Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. We're not obligated to observe the Sabbath, the seventh day. Nowhere in the New Testament does any mention of the Sabbath occur as an obligatory or even a suggested event that we are to observe. In fact, Paul says we're to worship God every day. doesn't matter if it's Sunday or Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday or Saturday. We can work on Saturday. We can work on Sunday. I work on Sunday. That's what I do. This is my job. So I'm against the Word of God if I say, uh-oh, you can't work on the Lord's Day. Well, that wouldn't fly, would it? It makes no sense. It's not about that. It's about observing by faith the things that God has done and saying, thank you, Lord, no matter what day it is. Paul said, regardless of whether it's a new moon or a Sabbath or any other day, worship God. That's what we do here. And so I don't really count this, by the way, as work for me. This is a calling. And if anybody has received the calling of the Lord to do what I do here, then Paul addresses that. He says, he who desires the office of a bishop desires a good thing. So listen, if you feel called, then you should be telling people, I believe God has called me to be a pastor, a teacher, whatever the calling might be, a Sunday school teacher, a janitor. He's called every one of us to be something, a servant of the Most High God in whatever capacity. Know your calling. But here again, Paul is saying in, in chapter 3, verse 4, a second Thessalonians, we have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are indeed doing those things that I have commanded. Not only are you doing, I have every confidence that you will continue to do them. Because I know that you're following the will of God and obeying His commands. Now again, in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, which is where I started before I went on that rabbit trail, in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, I quoted portions of that earlier. Paul says, pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. All the other things he says, and there are ten of them there, we are to do. You know, he doesn't call them in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians commandments. But I've referred to them as commandments by the Apostle Paul because they are absolutely needful in the church, in order for the church to function as it should in the present day, in his day, in our day. He commanded them to do things. Listen to what he says in verse 5. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. The Lord directs you. Man's heart plans his way. Proverbs 16.9 says, But the Lord directs His steps. Do you find that to be the case? 
I'm amazed when I go through the Word of God and I see examples of this over and over again. I think of Philip when he was in Samaria, in that central area just south of the Sea of Galilee. Great things were happening in Samaria. People were getting saved. Philip was an evangelist. He was part of that which what, what God was doing there. It was a great, exciting time. Miracles were happening. And it was just so wonderful for him to be a part of that. But then God called to him and said, Philip, I want you to go down to the desert. All he said. And Philip says, Oh, okay, Lord, I'll do that. So what's he do? Without knowing any further details, Philip goes south. And he's walking down towards this desert area, not really knowing what God had in store, but just being obedient to him. God's command was for him to go. Step by step, he walked in that direction until he came across a caravan. And as he came by that caravan, he overheard somebody reading the book of Isaiah. It happened to be Isaiah 53. So he comes up to the caravan and he says, Hey, do you know what it is that you're reading about there? And the reader said, How can I know unless somebody teach me? So Philip offered, I can help you. So he took that man who was a eunuch into a place of belief in Jesus Christ as the one who was fulfilling and had fulfilled that which was being read out of Isaiah chapter 53. (laughs) Remarkable. He didn't need to know exactly what God had intended for him. He just needed to know that he was having to obey what God had given to him. And it didn't matter to him that he didn't know all the details. He went in obedience, following after that simple command, and God did the rest. God opened that understanding at the appropriate time when it was needful for him to know. And he was able then to baptize that eunuch from Ethiopia. And the church spread further south than it had ever at that point even been thought possible. (laughs) And then Philip gets carried away by the Lord. Snatched away. It's a picture of the rapture of the church, by the way. Wonderful thing. God did. What about Abraham in the Old Testament? Abraham. His name was Abram at the time. Abram looked up and said, Who said that? Abram was not a Jew. He was before the Jews were even considered. He was the one through whom the Jews would come. But he was a Gentile. As a matter of fact, he worshipped Gentile gods in the land of Ur, now known as Iraq. God called him and he said, Abram, I want you to go to a place that I will show you. So Abram, having heard, didn't even question, apparently. He just said, Sarai, let's pack up. We're heading out of here. Where are we going? I don't know. But there is a God who just spoke to me and said, I'm to go that way and trust Him. And I'm going to. You're coming with me. He brought Lot. He brought others with him. He was a wealthy man at the time. 
And he went, left everything behind, going to a place that he had no idea what to expect or even where it was. All God said to him was, go to the place that I will show you. That's faith. He had told Abram, I will. And Abram said, I trust. That's how you and I need to be. Take every step that you take, knowing that He leads the way. Ephesians 4, chapter 4, verse 1 says this, Walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Remember I've said to you just now, all of us have a calling. Some of us have a calling, have a calling for different things. But we all have a calling. Walk worthy of that calling, my friends. Walk worthy of that calling. Especially in these last days. Paul says, in verse 6, again another command. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. What's Paul saying? There are some who are in the church who don't really believe what Paul has been teaching them. There are some who are detractors of the faith. He was experiencing it himself in Corinth. Paul's warning the Thessalonian church This is something that needs to be addressed. It's something that you need to be aware of. There are those who are detracting others from serving God in the church. He says in verse 7, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have authority, and yes, indeed, he did, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. Paul is saying, there are some who are disorderly, unruly individuals who try to take advantage of you. They're out there. In a small church like ours, I can count the number of people throughout the years of this ministry that I've been involved with, a very, very small, small number who were unruly, who were disruptive, and they're gone. I didn't kick them out. They just ended up going because they didn't really want to stay. That's good. A friend of mine, a pastor over many years out of liberty, used to say, that is godly subtraction, blessed subtraction, he used to say. Well, I'm not really sure that I count that as a blessed subtraction personally, but I do know that God takes care of those who trust in Him. Always has. Always will. Paul is saying here, look, I want to be an example to you. I was an example to you when I was there with you for however long it might have been. We do only know that Paul was 
teaching in the synagogue for the first three Sabbath days that he was there. And then we're not told how long it was before he had to leave because of persecution. It may have been a few weeks, it may have been a month or more, but it was a time that he spent while there working for his own provisions. Never once did he ask them to pay him a salary. Never once did he ask them to pay a housing allowance. Never once did he ask them to pay for his life insurance. Never once did he ask them to pay for his fuel costs for travel. This church pays me well, too well. I've never once asked them for more. They've offered what they've given. But it's not because I was saying, hey guys, you know what? I think I'm deserving of a better salary. If I look around and men in professions like mine in the secular world get paid pretty well, but you're not really paying me very well, so why don't you consider when your next time you meet with the board together, just kind of increase my salary by 20, maybe 30%. That would be good, wouldn't it? I've never done that and never will. When I was studying for the ministry, I remember one of the questions I was prompted to answer was, when you become a pastor, how much of a salary will you expect? My answer was, goose egg. I don't expect anything like that. Because I saw in the Word of God, God will provide. I don't want to take advantage of anyone. Not in this ministry. So I submit to you, Paul did the same thing here. Elsewhere, he wrote of the fact that he was grateful for the things that were given to him by, say, the Philippian church and and by others to support him in the ministry. It's not that Paul never received anything from them. He gladly received those benefits that came his way. But take note again, back in verse 1 where he says, pray for us. Notice that he didn't say, pray that God will give us a nice limousine to drive around in. Pray that God will give us a really nice mansion or an airplane to fly from one destination to another. He never said anything about himself being provided for through their prayer. Neither will I. Paul wanted to be an example. So must we all who are in this ministry. And there are so many who have been a bad example in regard to that which I am speaking of in terms of remuneration. Let it not be so among those who are faithful to God's Word. Verse 10, the third time he mentions the word command. He says, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. He's reminding us. He's reminding them. I spoke to you about these things. I commanded you, this is what you need to be aware of. This is what you need to do in order to live by faith, in order to bless the Lord, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. You must obey these things that have been presented to you by the Apostle because he has the authority to tell you that. If anyone will not work, he says, this is what he told them back when he was with them, by having given the example that he had given them, read it carefully, verse 10, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. 
we all look pretty healthy. I think we have no need for extra food beyond what we are already consuming. God has provided. That's a good thing. But there are those in Paul's day and there are those today. You all know that this is true. There are scoundrels out there. And some are in the church, unfortunately. And they take advantage of the body. They refuse to work. They get away with it. Because men and women who love the Lord have mercy on them, compassion on them. Oh, he's down and out. He doesn't have a job. He's lost his license for whatever reason. He can't drive. Well, there are cases when that is something that we should be involved in. But if the reason behind all of that is because that individual refuses to look for work, refuses to do what is right, to correct the wrongs that he has obviously done to put him in that place, then Paul says, "Uh uh-uh, he doesn't work, he doesn't eat. Not only that, Look at what else he says in verse 11. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. So they're going around just being busy, but busy bodies. That's not a good combination. They're getting involved in other people's lives because they want to be leeches and take what they can and they get away with it. I'm glad that we're a church that gives. And we give willingly, not grudgingly. We help those in need. We're part of a food pantry ministry. We do what we can do to provide for those who are in need. Primarily, our focus is those who are in the body of Christ first, and then those who are outside. But we do help those who are outside. I have given money to strangers Reluctantly, most of the time when I have a stranger coming up to me and asks for help, I don't generally give money because that's such an easy thing for them to take and use it for whatever. But I'll be glad to bring them into the store, Walmart or whatever we're at, whatever store happens to be, and I'll provide them with clothing or food. I'll try to meet their need. That's what we do. That's how we bless. That's how we represent Christ. That's how we shine the light. And hopefully, in the process of helping that individual, we have opportunity to share the love of God with them. But Paul says, there are those among us who are disorderly in their busybodies. They're not going to be willing to change. They're in that place because they want to be in that place. Because they can take advantage of the loving, caring hearts of individuals like you and I. It was so in Paul's day, it's so in our day as well. Verse 12 says, Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. That's the solution. Get a job. Convince them to do so. But if they don't, what is our responsibility? Paul tells us next. Verse 13, he says, But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. That's a command. Do not grow weary in doing good. 
And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, remember, he's given four commands, and now he says, you've got to obey that which has been spoken. This is a command. You must obey it. If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. What? Excommunication? How can that be? Is that right? That we should kick them out of the church because they're just trying to be a free handler? Paul says, yeah. But there's a reason for it. There's a purpose behind it. There's a goal in mind. Don't stop at verse 14 until you read the rest of it. He says in verse 15, Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. He's still a brother if he is in the church, has confessed faith in Jesus Christ, has been born again, received the Holy Spirit. He may be going down a track that he should not be going, but he's salvageable if he's a believer. And you should send him away lovingly with the hope that he'll be ashamed of all that has been taking place and come back and be received once again into fellowship. That's the goal. He's your brother. She's your sister. Admonish him as such. So the commands that Paul has given to the church, are they overwhelming? No. Of course not. They're needful. They're important. They're from God's own heart. Obey them. And trust Him that when you do so, He will indeed pour out a multitude of blessings in your life, in the life of His church. People of God, we do have a responsibility to do these things, to do them well. That's why we've got this book in front of us. That's why we're reading this passage here today. Because there is a great need in the body of Christ in these last days to recognize that this is important for us as well as it was for them 2,000 years ago. So finally, Paul gives his great benediction and ends this great letter. Paul says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. The Lord of peace, Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus said, My peace I give unto you. It's not the peace that the world gives. It's a peace they cannot give. It's a special kind of peace. It's a peace that comes from God that gives us not only the wonderful promise that He is with us and that we have peace with God, but also peace in God. I'm reminded also that Jesus prayed a prayer. And I'm grateful for my friend Richard Spencer here today who pointed this out to us at a board meeting recently. Back in verse 3 of this chapter that we're looking at in Second Thessalonians, 
Paul says, But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. Take a look with me, and we'll close with this. At John, the Gospel of John, chapter 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. John 17, beginning with verse 17. Jesus is speaking to His Father, and He says these words, Sanctify them, His disciples, including you and I. Sanctify them by Your truth. Your Word is truth. Pilate said, What is truth? Pilate said, Behold the man. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by Me. John called Him the Word of God. Jesus is praying again to His Father, saying, Sanctify them, these disciples, in and by Your truth. Your Word is truth. And here's what I want to get to. He says in verse 18, As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. That's you and me also. And for their sakes, for your sake and for mine, I sanctify myself. Jesus is saying, I have separated myself from all that is evil. I have made myself to be a sinless, faithful Lamb of God. Worthy to represent all of mankind by sacrificing my own flesh as a sin offering. I sanctify myself that they may also be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Paul is saying, The same thing in Thessalonians' letter. May the Lord of peace Himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. He is with you, is He not? Have you received Him as your Savior? Have you believed in His full payment Yeah. I've accepted Christ as my Savior. I believe that He died for my sins. I believe that I am born again, filled with the Holy Spirit, regenerated by the power of the Spirit at that moment when I said yes to Jesus Christ. Save me, Lord. Heal my broken flesh and exchange this sinful nature of mine with Your righteousness. Have you done that? And you're in. You're in Christ. Back to the prayer that Jesus prayed. Listen carefully what He says. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in Me through their Word, that they all may be one as You, Father, are in Me and I in You, that they also may be one in Us. Are you in Christ today?
You can praise the Lord for it because if you are, you're in permanently. It's your promise from a holy God that you can hang on to no matter what happens in the world around us, no matter what our future may be. And it does look kind of bleak out there, doesn't it? But we have a hope and a future. We have Christ. We have His promises. Tell somebody. And if you are able to live for Him in these last days, it is by the Spirit of God that you are empowered. So let us be mindful of that. It's not you who does the work. It's Him who does the work in you, through you. But as a result of that, we can know these things. A peace of God that passes all understanding is ours, appropriated by faith. And not only that, but lastly, in verse 18 of Second Thessalonians, where we are ending this study here today, Paul says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. To that I say, Amen. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly.